but we trust you. Pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen, you guys. Have a seat. You're already seated. All right. Somehow I'm going to get back in the Gospel of Matthew. Okay. Uh, Gospel of Matthew chapter 5. If you're new or visiting and you're wondering, who is this guy crying on stage? Um, my name's Tyler. I'm one of the pastors here at the Stone. And we're going to be in the Gospel of Matthew chapter 5. All right, we're actually going to be in the Gospel of Matthew for a very brief period of time. We're going to start there. We're not going to stay there because here's what happened. As we're preparing these sermons over uh, the last couple of months ago, uh, Scott, will you guys give me a tissue? You give me one? Thanks. Sorry. I just I can't sit here and sniffle the whole time. Um, I'm sure I looked amazing. Okay. But when we were preparing these sermons a, c- a couple of months ago, I don't know if you know this, know this but all of our preaching pastors, we, we get together. Oh, you, hey, that's why you get paid the big bucks. Appreciate it. Okay, I don't need 15, okay? I'm just kidding. Uh, sorry, this is my uh, onstage counseling session. Um, okay, so we were preparing these sermons, and we began to notice this pattern, this theme, that the way the, the gospel writer Matthew arranged Jesus' sermon is he arranged in such a way where lust and divorce and remarriage are paired back to back. And what you notice when you read these uh, scriptures is that the way they're paired back to back is Jesus is assuming a lot of knowledge that we're supposed to have. Because what he's doing is he's correcting when he's teaching. So when Jesus is teaching on lust and marriage, he's correcting what should not be done, but he's not giving us, well then what is God's vision for sexuality and for marriage? So I want you to see this for yourself in Matthew 5, 27, You'll see how they're grouped together and you'll see what Jesus is assuming as he's teaching. So Matthew 5, 27 says this. It says, you've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away, for it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. So we we studied that last week. If you missed that sermon, check that out. Okay, verse 31 is where we're going to be next week, okay? It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. That's next week. So Jesus is teaching on the severity of sexual sin, the permanence of marriage, and the very narrow grounds for divorce. But these teachings assume that you understand, well, what is God's vision for sexuality and marriage? And for Jesus, when he's teaching this, that's a safe assumption for him to make. Why? Because the audience he's preaching to is largely Jewish. So these Jewish men and women, they have this rich tradition of the Old Testament forming and shaping almost all of their daily lives and culture and shaping how they viewed sexuality and marriage. So they may not have interpreted the text correctly or even obeyed it perfectly, but they were familiar with God's word on these topics. But I don't think the same is true for the majority of us. I think most of us, when it comes to sexuality and marriage, we know what not to do We know what not to believe, but we're not that familiar with, well, then what should we pursue? 
What should we be about? And even more difficult than that for a lot of us is answering why. Not just what do we believe and what do we do, but also why do we believe that? I mean, you ever ask the question, why does God care about sexuality and marriage anyways? Have you ever asked the question, why is God seemingly so concerned about who you sleep with? But who are the people in our city sleep with? Why is God so concerned with marriage? And sometimes more than we'd like to admit, in our heart of hearts, Christianity can feel, just feel, maybe not rationally, but feel less compelling than what the world has to offer because we don't know why and what we're pursuing. We don't know what we're about. Like for so many of us, Christianity becomes the things that we're against. You're like, what are you for? You're like, not those things. But then you're asked, well, tell me what your better version is. You're like, I don't know. If if you think that Christianity is only negative attitudes towards sin and evil, that won't be enough to fill your heart up. It won't. Your heart's not made merely to oppose things. Your heart is made to seek and pursue and find and delight in things. Now listen, to, to know God To know God will mean that we have to stand against sin and evil in the world. But even more so, it'll mean a love and a passion for what's good and what's right and what's beautiful and what's true. You only know what's wrong and what's broken when you're delighting in and loving what's good, right, and beautiful. This is so often true for sexuality and marriage. So often we teach and develop strong convictions about what we shouldn't do, but we rarely know the good and valuable reality we're after. And so often, it's our own prejudice and self-righteousness that is behind our correct theological stances. Hear that sentence again, church. You can have a correct theological stance and have a self-righteous heart. It doesn't mean the theological stance is wrong, it just means your heart is wrong. You won't understand the heart of the law and what God says. So that's what I wanna do today. I want to answer the question, why did God create sex for marriage in the first place? What is the good that he is protecting and promoting by design? So here's a definition that we're pursuing of what we're after as Christians, what we believe. God created sex and sexual desires to be expressed exclusively in the lifelong covenant of love between a husband and wife. God created sex and sexual desires to be expressed exclusively in the lifelong covenant of love between a husband and wife. And this is important, not just for married people to believe, not just for conservative people to believe, but for the entire church to believe. It's exactly what we're told in Hebrews 13.4. To the entire church, the writer says, let marriage be held in honor among all. And let the marriage bed be undefiled. For God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Marriage and the sexuality expressed within it is important for all of God's people. Now, before I get into, well, why has God made it this way? It's really important you understand that Christians are not the only ones putting restrictions around sex. It's really important you understand this. 
Christianity, God himself, are not the only ones putting restrictions around sex. It's really easy to have this caricature of Christians and Christianity as these really repressive, rigid people, these prude people who don't like sexuality, so we put restrictions around it because we don't really like it. And everyone else in the world is so much more liberated and free and confident in themselves to express their sexuality in all the ways that they desire. That's a caricature. I was listening to a pastor in Britain His name's Andrew Wilson. He's a really good theologian. He was preaching on this topic. He made a phenomenal insight. He pointed out that everybody cares about who people are sleeping with. So it's not just Christians and Christianity. Everybody cares about who people are sleeping with, especially in our society right now. Right now, and rightly so, everybody's concerned about the boundaries and the code of ethics that define our collective sexuality. I don't know a single person who truly believes that anyone should be able to have sex with whoever they want, no matter what. I don't know anyone, well, if you're here and you're not a Christian, I don't know any non-Christians who think, well, listen to the statement, the statement carefully, that you should be able to have sex with whoever you want no matter what. We care a lot right now, and rightly so, and we should care, in this society about a person's age when it comes to sexual expression, right? That person's 13, that's a big deal. We should restrict certain things, right? We care a lot right now, and we should, about consent, and we should. Whether or not a person has consented to this act is a, of massive importance, right? The person's marital status, that's important. I, I don't know anybody, whether, once again, if you're not a Christian, I'm glad you're here. I don't know anyone who thinks that cheating on someone is a good thing. We would at least agree on that. See, it's not that Christians, we're the only ones drawing lines around how sexuality should be expressed. Everybody is. Everybody draws lines because everybody's recognizing there's something powerful about this. We have to be careful about how it's stewarded and how it's practiced in the society that we belong to. See, even if someone doesn't believe in the Bible and draw their morality from the scriptures, we know from the Bible that people, because they bear the image of God, can't help but still make moral laws. This is exactly what Paul says in Romans 2.14. Paul's a Jewish man. He's traveling around the Mediterranean world He's interacting with all these people groups and these cultures of people who have never, ever read the Hebrew scriptures of the Old Testament. And yet here's what he says, Romans 2.14. He says, for when Gentiles who do not have the law, don't, don't have the Old Testament, by their nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. You read that, you're like, what? Like, what does that mean? He said law a lot, right? Here's his point. He's saying people who have never received a direct revelation from God on what they should do in any circumstance, they can't help by their own conscience to create moral categories, to create morality even around sexuality. That's what Paul was pointing out. People can't help but do it. Even if they they don't agree with us on Jesus being the son of God or the Bible being the word of God, everyone is placing regulations and restrictions around our sexuality. Now, If everyone's making standards and everyone's making boundaries, why is it that the scriptures have different boundaries than the world around us? Well, there's a lot of reasons for that, but here's what it comes down to. It has to do with what you think sex is, who you think humans are, and what marriage is. 
What is sex? Who are human beings? And what is marriage? And our society very creatively and winsomely answers those three questions in your life all the time. Now, it's not written out on a doctrinal statement. Like, you don't watch a movie and they go, before we begin, here's what we believe about sexuality. It's not how it works, right? It's laced within the narrative. It's latent within the images about this is what sexuality is. This is who human beings are. Here's what freedom looks like. It's everywhere in our culture. But here's what Christians do. We see them and go, see, bad. Don't want that. I know everything in you wants it, just don't. You're like, okay. Well, what are you for? Again, I don't know. And so here's what I wanna give. I wanna give you God's answers to those questions. God has better answers and a better story for your sexuality. He has a better story for what it means to be a human, for what it means to be in a marriage. That's what, that's what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna answer the questions, what is sex, who are human beings, and what is marriage? So the first one, what does the Bible say about sex? A lot, but let me give you a really succinct definition for our purposes. Sex in the scriptures is holy because you uniquely know someone through it. Sex is holy because you uniquely know someone through it. Sexual expression is not like anything else in life. And so when the scriptures talk about sexual expression, they always talk about it in terms that are much deeper than merely biology. So when sex is talked about in the Bible, it's not described, we talked talked about this last week, as inherently wrong or sinful or dirty. God created it. And so by nature, it's good when it's operated within and in line with God's word. So it's not dirty, it's actually good, but also it's not casual or cheap. Sexuality is not described as one of many things you partake in that are all the same, as if Sometimes you're having sex and sometimes you're shaking hands. Who knows the difference? Like there, there's a difference, right? Welcome high school. Like there, 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 there's a difference. It's gonna get so much better, okay? Um, it's not casual, it's not cheap. No, listen. Sex is considered holy, set apart, and special. Why? Because through sexual expression, you are known and you know someone else in a special and distinct and unique way. You see this clearly when the Bible describes sex as knowing someone. So the very first sexual act that's described in the Bible, you see this happen, Genesis 4.1. Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain. Adam knew Eve. Over and over again in the Old Testament, the Hebrew word that's used right there It means to have knowledge of, biblical writers use that to describe sexual expression. Now the reason for the word know there is not because God is scared of the word. It's not as if he's like, ooh, that word is yucky, I don't know what to do with that. How about no, why, I don't know, go with it. Like there's not, it's not as if it was thoughtless. He's not scared of it, he created it. But he's using that word to know Because he wants us to understand that sexual expression is more than physical and biological. It's intimate and it's revealing. Even if no words are spoken, you are communicating something about the depths of who you are to that other person. God never diminishes the physical nature or the joy of sexuality, but he's telling us it's so much deeper and so much more intimate and so much more spiritual than we truly understand. 
that through it, there's a special knowing and sharing of who you are with somebody else. And nowhere in the Bible is this more clear than in the Song of Solomon or the Song of Songs. Now, if you're here and you're not a Christian or you're here and you're a brand new believer and you never read this book before, I think you'll be surprised at how explicit and provocative the poetry is when it describes sexual expression. If you've never read it before, you're gonna read it and go, this is in the Bible for real? Like, this is really there? I mean, your covenant eyes would go off if you Googled some of these things, right? <laughs> That's what would happen. If you're here and not a Christian, you're like, what is covenant eyes? Totally a Christian joke, sorry about that. Um, but here's what happens when you read Song of Songs, if you idolize sex, if you idolize sex, you'll go, Now that's the kind of God I can believe in. This is my kind of God. And if you demonize sex, when you see that that it's in the inerrant word of God, you'll think, oh, that makes me feel uncomfortable. I feel like that shouldn't be in there. This poetry is too provocative. But this is the section of the sermon where if I was preaching through Song of Songs where I would read to you, this is what most sermons do, I'd read to you the provocative text in the Song of Songs and go, look how cool God is. You know, like, look how hip he is and how he talks about how alive and exuberant sexuality can truly be within the, co- the covenant of marriage. But if you read Song of Songs, you'll see that on your own. But here's what I think you'll miss. Because in our pornographic culture, you're gonna immediately go towards the graphic things and you'll miss the subtle poetry of the knowing that happens in the sexuality. You'll miss the intimacy and the sharing laced without it. See, in the Song of Solomon, the Song of Songs, God is teaching us the equal importance of the physical joy of sex and the special knowing of sex. He shows us the powerful combination of knowing both body and soul that makes sex so distinct from everything else. So Song of Solomon 519, here's what the bride says to her husband. His mouth is most sweet, and he's altogether desirable. This is my beloved, and this is my friend, O daughters of Jerusalem. She speaks of her husband as lover, but also as her friend. That the physical pleasures of their relationship are wrapped up in this larger friendship that they have. This knowing that they have this special knowledge of one another that nobody else possesses but the two of them. This is the reason God has different boundaries for sexuality than the world around us because if sexuality is truly this intimate, this revealing at a psychological and spiritual level, then like so many other aspects of your life, you shouldn't just share this with anybody. As some of you have secrets that you've only told a couple of people, why? Because you inherently know there are certain things about my life that I shouldn't just share with everybody because this is personal and private to me. How much more so is the act of sexual expression with somebody else? It's that intimate, it's that revealing, which leads us to our next question. Then what does the Bible say about human beings? If that's what sex is, then who are we? The Bible says a lot, let me give you for our purposes a short definition. Human beings have immense value and worth because we bear the image of God. Human beings have immense value and worth because we bear the image of God. So listen, follow the logic. If sexual expression involves a deep knowing of someone, and as a human being, because you bear the image of God, you have immense value, then you shouldn't just give yourself away thoughtlessly and carelessly. God cares so much about your sexuality, not, listen, not because he thinks so little of you. 
So often we talk about God's view of us, we view it as if he's so frustrated and angry, and that's why he's telling us to stop, don't do this, don't do this. That's actually not what the Bible says at all. It's quite the opposite. He cares so much because he thinks so much of you. He thinks so highly of you. I mean, I'll give you two famous verses you need to see in this slide. Genesis 1:27. So God created man in his own image. The most valuable being in the universe created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So male and female, you bear the image and likeness of God. Then John 3.16, another famous verse. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Not for God so, was so tired of the world. God was so frustrated with the world. God so loved the world. So he's saying, you bear his image, you bear his likeness, he has love for you, that means you have immense value. Okay, well the more valuable and the more precious something is, the more costly and more difficult it should be to possess it. The more valuable, the more costly, the more rare anything is, the more difficult, the more costly it should be to have it. Casual sex with someone with no lifelong commitment to you is saying you are not that valuable. It's saying you are not that valuable. If someone can have access to the most intimate aspects of who you are as a human being with little effort and little devotion and little cost, then you are saying you are not valuable enough for that cost, for that devotion, for that sacrifice. Now our world is gonna tell you that that is freedom, that it's freedom. It, it, and in a sense, there is some freedom to it, but it's the freedom to be treated as if you're cheap. It's the freedom to be, cheated, to be treated as if you are cheap. It's the freedom to live like there's nothing special about you, but everything in the Bible says different. Everything in the Bible says, there's nothing in the universe like you. There's no one else God sent his son for. So you living like you're not special is contrary to everything God has made you to be. It's because God thinks so highly of you why he cares so much. And on top of all of this, if you've trusted in Christ, if you're a Christian, you, not only do you bear the image of God, now you bear the image of Jesus, his son, and the Holy Spirit resides in you. I want you to listen to how Paul speaks to the Corinthian church about the ways they were expressing their sexuality outside of marriage. 1 Corinthians 6, 15. He says, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make the members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Do you see how much sharing there is in sexual expression? Listen, if you're a Christian, listen, the point of this text is you have been united with Christ. The church has been united with Christ. We are so one with him that whatever happens to him happens to us. 
So if Jesus dies, suffers and dies, and then rises from the dead, then we, because we're union with him, we will suffer and die and rise from the dead. If he's gonna reign over new heavens, new earth, then we're gonna reign over the heavens and new heavens and new earth. His story is now our story. Where he goes, we, in a sense, go. But Paul's point is it also works the other way. You are so unified with Jesus that you take him into your sexual sin too. You are so unified in a part of who he is that when we rebel against God, we take Jesus in a sense with us, united with him. And not only are are we united with Jesus, but we're also the dwelling place of the spirit of God. You are where the spirit of God dwells. We are where the spirit of God dwells. And that whole thing, your body's a temple, just side note, it's not a verse about eating clean and working out, by the way. Sorry to burst your bubble. If you have a shirt with that on it, it's wrong, okay? Um, it's, not a, it's a verse about how we express our sexuality. Now, brother and sister in Christ, listen, you are so valuable to God. God the Father has made us his very own children. God the Son has made us his very own body. God the Spirit has made us his very own temple. That's why you seek to glorify God because his love has given you this standing in his kingdom. It cost him his son. That's why you glorify God with your sexuality. That's why you don't give yourself in the most intimate of ways to just anyone who wants to, or even if you desire it for a moment. He's saying you're more valuable than that, which leads us to the last piece of what is marriage. What does the Bible say about marriage? Well, a lot. Let me give you a definition for our purposes. Marriage is the lifelong covenant of love between a man and woman, but this last piece is important where such intimate knowing of such valuable persons flourishes most. It's a lifelong covenant of love between a man and woman where such intimate knowing of such valuable persons flourishes most. This is why God made sex for marriage. Sexuality requires such vulnerability of such valuable people that the only person you should be that vulnerable with is someone who looks back at you and says, I'm never leaving you, I'm never forsaking you. Where you go, I will go. It requires such intimacy and such vulnerability and you are so valuable that you should only give that to someone who says, no matter what happens, I'm not going anywhere. Because it's sexual expression that initiated the marriage. This is why an active and ongoing sex life is important for married couples. Because it's sexuality that brought you together that was actually how your marriage covenant began. And it's sexuality that reminds you, oh wait, I don't have a covenant, I don't have a union with anyone else in my life like I do with my spouse. So for married couples in the room, you share a lot of your life uniquely with your spouse, but a lot of your life you share with your spouse, you do in some sense share with other people. So let me give you an example. I I share my most intimate thoughts and feelings with my wife, Lauren, but I also share them candidly with other close friends of mine trusted close friends of mine. I I share special trips and meals and finances with Lauren, but I also share those things in some form or fashion with close, trusted male friends of mine. But sexuality is something that I do not express in any form or any fashion with anyone other than my wife. Why? Because I have a covenant of love with her that I don't have with anybody else. That she's committed to me in ways nobody else is. I'm committed to her in ways that nobody else is. And sexual expression reminds husband and wife, you and I have a commitment to one another that nobody else has. 
God is not repressed. He isn't prude. He just has a higher view and more robust view of sexuality than you do. He just has a higher view of human dignity than you do. He just has marriage as its lifelong covenant of safety for weak men and women to be known in that way. That's why he cares. But this leads me to my very last point. After saying all of that, making all those points, we have to conclude with the bigger reality that none of us ultimately were made for sex or for marriage. We were made for God and for relationships of love found with his people. This is where the world, and you gotta hear me on this, this is where the world and where the church gets it wrong. So the world makes sex our God. Talked about it last week. The world makes sex our God. And so the world says, you cannot be fully human if you are not expressing sexual desires. You can't flourish without expressing sexuality. But anyone in this room who's had sex before, whether in marriage or out of marriage, you have to admit, if you're being honest, sex is a terrible God. It's a terrible God. Because when sex begins and your, your desires define the terms and the boundaries, what always happens is we end up treating people like objects to be consumed, not persons to be loved. And what happens is sex has to keep t- selling you new promises and keep moving the line of satisfaction because what you thought would satisfy you actually is getting old and tired, so you need something new and fresh and different, and the line keeps progressing and progressing and progressing because it never actually fulfilled the promise that it made to you. That's the lie of the world. But the church gets it so wrong when our response to that is to say, well, then the goal is to be married. And the goal is to be married. We in the church, maybe not explicitly, but implicitly, we talk about marriage like it's the relationship that will finally satisfy you. We talk about it as if sex in marriage is where all of your sexual desires are finally and fully satiated forever and ever, amen. But that's a mirage, church. That's a lie. That's actually not true. We try to compete with the lies of the world with lies of our own. With lies of our own. Marriage does not solve your sexual problems. Any married couples want to give me an amen on that, right? If you're single, you're like, not me. Yeah, you too. Engaged couples, especially you, know that, okay? You and your boo, you're not an anomaly, okay? Um, You will still need self-control. You will still need to know how to love someone more than you. You have to know your spouse will not always want to have sex with you. Once again, I'm blowing some of your minds right now. It's, it's not going to happen. Listen, sometimes they'll say yes, and sex won't be that great. It won't. You'll be like, that's it? All right. Like, all right. Netflix. Like, that's what will happen. Your spouse will be irritable. They'll be frustrated. They'll be sinful. They'll get diagnosed with cancer going through chemo. A parent will have passed, and they'll be grieving. They'll be pregnant, they'll be stressed, they'll be out of town. And all of other life circumstances will teach you sex is a terrible God, and so is marriage. Neither one of them can save you in all the ways we like to communicate like that it could. Now listen, I love marriage, 
I'm all for marriage, it's beautiful, and sex within it can be truly incredible, but even when sex is incredible, it's still a small part of what your marriage is. It's so much more than that. So God made sex and God made marriage not to solve all of our problems, but to point us to what we're truly made for, for him and for relationships of love. Look back at 1 Corinthians 6. I want to show you this, how Paul deals with our sexual immorality. He says, the body is not meant for sexual immorality. Your body is not meant for it, Christian, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. Okay, now here's how the church, more than we like to admit, communicates this to the world. We say, yes, amen, the body's not meant for sexual morality, and we say, but for marriage. Just get married, and that'll solve it. That's not what Paul says. He says, oh, what a terrible God that would be. No, you're made for the Lord, and the Lord for you. This body of yours, he's gonna resurrect it one day, that the good life and the full life that Jesus brought to us is found in God and not in marriage and not in sexual expression. This is why single men and women are not second-class citizens in the kingdom of God. They're not, if you're single, you're not. You have the same standing, the same access to joy as married people in this room, the exact same, the exact same. Are there unique challenges to singleness? Absolutely. Are there unique challenges to marriage and parenting? Of course. But both married and single people in the church bear witness to the fact that, no, it's only in Jesus where I'm satisfied. It's only in relationships of love where I'm satisfied that the perfect intimacy and delight and joy and love and commitment and union that I'm really looking for is not found in another person, it's found in being in the bride of Christ. It's found in being unified to him. So if you're here and you've been widowed or you're divorced, I want you to know that God is for you and God loves you. This church is for you and we love you. It is not a sentence on the rest of your life that you're never gonna be happy again, far from the case. And if you're here and you experience same-sex attraction, I know you've heard a lot of crazy things. I want you to know God loves you and he's for you and you can have more joy than married people in this church if you go to Jesus. That we wanna walk alongside of you. Because being single is not a death sentence. Being single is a calling that God gives to us in the same way he gives the calling of marriage. Neither one can satisfy you, because I know plenty of single people who wanna be married. I know plenty of married people who like to say, I love to be single, right? Because the point of our lives is to be made for God and relationships of love. Jesus is the happiest human who ever lived, never married, never had sex. How could he be happy? Because he had the love of God. And he had the people of God to be his friends. That's what he died to give to you, to give you God's love no matter what, to give you the people of God no matter what. Even when the people of God fail you, they can still be people who come alongside and be the community you're made for. That's why we follow his words, why we follow his ways, because no one loves you the way that he does. Now, all of us in this arena, I'm casting this vision for the good and the right and the beautiful and why we should do it, but I know if we are honest, All of us right now, if you look at your life honestly, all of us have shame when it comes to this. All of us have failures when we come to this. A lot of us have hurt 
over our own sexual sins and the sexual sins of other people. And I want you to know, if you're here and you're thinking, I, Tyler, I hear what you're saying, but if you knew my story, there's no way I can believe I'm forgiven. I want you to know you are in good company in this room. This room is a bunch of sexual failures in this room. You need to know that. We can dress it up all we like, but I know this room. And the way you get in the kingdom of God is not by saying, look how strong I've been. The way you get in the kingdom of God is by saying, I am not clean without you, Jesus. I can, if it's up to me, I'm not getting in. Those are the people who understand grace. So I want you to know, if you're here and you're feeling burdened by this, I want you to know that on our own, yeah, none of us are clean, but with Jesus, you're made brand new. And even if you're thinking, but I failed again and again and again, he never tires of forgiving you because his blood only looks that more powerful when it keeps forgiving sinners like us. The actions that define you most are not the ones done by you or to you. It's the one Jesus did for you. The actions that define your life and your future most are not your own. They're his. The way Paul closes out 1 Corinthians 6, that section, he says, describing sexual sin, he says, and such were were some of you. You were that. But I did it last night. But I did it this morning. You were that. But you were washed. And you were sanctified and set apart and made special. And you were justified, made right and confident in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the spirit of our God. We trust God with our sexuality and with marriage because he gave Jesus for us. And Jesus held nothing back from us. So we hold nothing back from him. Let's pray. Father, of all the different things that are swirling around in the minds of the men and women in this room of all the different emotions and all the different images and all the different lies. God, even now, would you get our mind's attention to help us see that when you speak to us, it's for our good, it's for our flourishing. God, for the men and women in this room who all right now we can think about is our failures, God, would you even now remind us what your word just said That's who you used to be. God, that's who we used to be. And even if we fail and flounder, our identity and who you call us has not changed. You don't call the Christians in this room who have sinned and need to repent right now. You never call us anything less than sons and daughters. You never speak to us in terms or in tone different than as a loving father who says, it's because I love you so much why I'm calling out to you. So God, for the single men and women in this room, God, would you remind them that they are not less than? Would you remind them that they're calling even now, even if they don't wanna be single for the rest of their lives, well, no matter what comes, God, that you are the portion that satisfies that we'd be a church that doesn't sell them a lie, that marriage will fix it. God, it won't. Jesus, you are the one we're made for. 
And even now, give the men and women who you've called to be single dreams of how they could use their singleness in ways that married folks in here could never serve and never lead and never love and never pray. And God, for the married couples in here, God, even now, would you prompt conversations they need to have? Would you prompt honesty and confession? Would you prompt repentance and humility? And God, for all of us, would you pry our hands free from sex as our God and marriage as our God? They can't save. They can only condemn. They can't save. They can only make false promises. But Jesus, you can save. And Jesus, you're stronger than our sin. You're stronger than our fears. You're stronger than our circumstances. You're stronger than our pain. So God, as we sing today, help us sing as men and women who have been washed, who've been sanctified, who've been justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the spirit of our God. Help us lean into that, God, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen, church, let's stand, let's sing together.